Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Well, good morning, Venture. Uh, Wish everybody and greet you on this Memorial Day weekend. Glad that we can uh, celebrate tomorrow. I thought we'd take a moment though, uh, before we continue in our service, just to stop and remember, and just to, in our own hearts, have a heart of thankfulness, uh, especially on this weekend. Uh, We always wanna take this time to remember those on Memorial Day who gave their lives. And they gave their lives in service to the country, they gave their lives in service to us. And I I was thinking about it, especially right now, it just feels like our country's divided in so many ways. This is something we can unify around. No matter where you're coming from, all of us can be thankful for those who are willing to sacrifice on our behalf and and thankful not just to them, but but also the, the husbands and wives and children and mothers and fathers who lost someone they love and they bear the brunt of that sacrifice. And so as we take a moment before we just continue on in our service, will you just bow with me and uh, let's go before God and just thank him for those who served on our behalf. Father, we come before you. I do just thank you for the men and women who have gone before generation after generation that have sacrificed, that have been willing to go serve, have been willing to lay down their lives. Lord, we don't take that lightly. I I pray that you would grow in us just gratitude that we can rally together and say thank you. Lord, we, we pray for those who still experience that loss. We do pray for those who lost someone in their family. They lost a loved one, lost a parent, lost a child. Lord, we pray that they would know the thanks of this nation and as people for their sacrifice as well. Father, we thank you for the freedoms that we have. We thank you that we can gather here freely as a people, that we can loudly proclaim and praise you, that we can open up your word and speak it. Lord, we just thank you for those who provided these freedoms for us. And Father, as we think of sacrifice, We thank you most of all for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We are here because he laid down his life. We are here because he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so we come before you and we say thank you. And we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Well, this weekend uh, we're finishing out this series we've been doing on the seven practices. And if you've been here the last several weeks, you know this isn't just a sermon series. This this is fundamental to how we're thinking and praying and planning as a church because we feel the weight of responsibility. If we're gonna live out the command that Jesus said of making disciples, what does that mean? If we're gonna be people who follow Jesus, how would we define what that looks like? As we've looked in John 14, six, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How do we live in this way? Not just a way to heaven, but the way of God. How do we live in his truth? Not just knowing truth about him, but defining our lives according to it. How do we experience the abundant life now as followers of Jesus? And so we've been looking at it. We've said the venture way is how we do it through these seven practices. 
And we didn't just randomly put this, we, we spent a lot of time thinking through what are the core ways that we as a church would tell someone, if you came here and we're gonna follow Jesus together, how would you do this? What does that look like? And, and a lot of times we can kind of assume everyone knows, but some people, you're, maybe you're here and you're very early in your journey. This is a great time for you to learn this. Some of you, you've been doing it for years. If you're like me though, you can kind of look at it and find yourself, you're really drawn to some of these practices, maybe more than the others. And you realize, oh man, if I'm gonna be really well-rounded as a follower of Jesus, I, I need this kind of discipline to look at it. And, and I want you thinking about it, not just as followers, but recognizing as well, for everybody who's a follower of Jesus, somebody's following you. That's how he designed it. If you're a disciple of Jesus, his first command to his disciples was make disciples. So he makes the assumption that as you're following him, you've got somebody right behind you that you're investing in, that you're handing it off to. And so as we think about these seven practices, as we follow Jesus, we want to provide a way for others to follow us. You know, Paul has a short little verse he wrote to the church in Corinth. But every time I read it, it's convicting because he, he succinctly puts all this together. Look what he says to this church. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Isn't that powerful command? He's writing a church and they're trying to figure out what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And so Paul says, hey, let me simplify this for you. You imitate me as I'm imitating Jesus. That's, that's the core command of discipleship, by the way. That, that every person that we say, hey, I'm gonna chase hard after Jesus. And he's not saying I'm perfect. He's not saying I'm a perfect example, but he is saying I'm a real example. I'm an open example. I'm inviting you into my life. We're gonna do life together. And so as I follow Jesus, you can follow me and you'll know what that looks like. And I think this is so important and you always wanna keep both those things in mind because we can turn discipleship kind of into an individualistic pursuit. It's just me and Jesus, I'm following Jesus. And Jesus always set it up. No, it's never just you and Jesus. You always are looking backwards and going, okay, how do I invest in the next person? If you're a parent, especially, you're automatically in the discipleship game. Because you, you got this group, they're following you and they're looking to you to, to define for them what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And, and even as I looked at this list, I, again, it was helpful for me that I go, man, am I building these things into my kids' lives? Am I just assuming they know it? Oh man, just hang around here, we'll come to church and maybe you'll pick up enough of it. Or am I intentionally looking at it and going, okay, these are the things you need to develop in your life as a follower of Jesus. I think the convicting part for any of us that are parents is not just what you teach them, they're picking up the most what you model for. And so we can say to them all day, oh yeah, I value this. I value engaging God in quiet time and this is really important. And they're looking at it and going, yeah, is it really important in your life though? Is that a part of your life? You know, Robert Fulgham had that saying years ago. He said, don't worry that your kids are not listening to you. Worry that they're watching you. <laughs> and there is a reality about this. And so part of what we wanna do with all of these practices is not only how do we grow, but how am I investing in others? And would I know how to define that for other people as we do it? 
And so what I wanna do today, I just wanna go through each of the seven in some practical ways. This is a kind of a summary message. If you weren't a part of it, go back. This isn't the last time you're gonna hear about it, by the way. We're thinking about it now as a staff of how do we with each of these practices, how do we develop maybe some classes around that? How do we develop small group and life group curriculum with it? How do we do that? Because we, we so fundamentally want this to be a part of defining how do we do this together? So as we look at it, the first practice, engage God. And there's a reason this one's first. This is the keystone practice. If you don't know how to do this, the rest of them are really hard. You learn how to do this in your life, it's amazing how they flow into the other ones. For each of these practices, I'm gonna give you a why and a how. I'm gonna give you a why first of all, because if you don't have a why, then, then it just becomes, oh, these are just things we should do. Why should you engage God? Fundamentally, because you were made to experience life with him. It's what you were actually made for. You were made to have life with God. You were made to be in relationship with him. It's fundamental to your soul. It's fundamental to your life. And if you're not engaging, if you're not doing life with him, no wonder you're frustrated all the time. No wonder we stay stressed out in all the other categories because at a fundamental soul level, we're not actually experiencing what he designed us to experience with him. That's why this is one of these ones that, that just we come back to and I'll just call you to of how do you do that in a way that you know him, you experience him. Look how Jesus put it. He said, I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides, that word abides actually means we live with, we do life together. We take up residence. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. If you're a plant, what is the sign of life? You have fruit. And so Jesus said, if you wanna experience life, if you wanna experience what, what you were designed to experience in life, you've got to abide, we've got to live together. And then he puts it on the opposite side of it. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's pretty stark, isn't it? And, and so when we, we come and we think about it, I, I just ask you at a fundamental level, are you doing life with him? It, are you engaging? Because if you're not, and when I'm not, as soon as I don't, I'm, I'm going through the driest seasons because what have I done? I've disconnected myself from life or I'm not engaging at that level. You know, one of the verses that we often use when we're sharing the good news, sharing the gospel, people will use Revelation 3.20. It's the verse where Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. And, and we'll describe it in a way of opening the door in your heart to invite him into your life. If you actually go back to the context, he's not writing that to people who are not Christians. He's writing it to a church. It's a church in Laodicea. It's people who become lukewarm Christians. People who've lost life. And there's a number of issues he addresses. Look what he says is the prescription though. He says, look, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. It's, it's this description, especially in that culture, when you shared a meal together, that was how you actually did life together. And so, so Jesus is coming to this, this church of lukewarm people. And he says, hey, I'm knocking at the door. I'm knocking at the door of your life. And if you'll open the door and, and I wanna come on in, I wanna, I wanna go to the dinner table. I want, I want us to share a meal together. I, I wanna do life at that level together. 
I mean, you think about people that come to your door. You, you, sometimes you have a salesman come to the door, you know, you kind of, you open it just enough to go, okay, yeah, no, yes, whatever, whether I want it, but you want to get rid of them. And then sometimes you'll have an unexpected visitor, somebody you know. It might even be a friend, but you weren't really expecting it. You're not sure. You ever, you do that kind of where you open the door just enough to be friendly, but you're not going to open the door so much that they might think they could go in. So we're going to have a, we're going to have a, a doorstep conversation and be friendly with it. And sometimes it depends on what's going on. That's, that's fine with it. But then you have other friends that when they come, what do you do? Oh, it's them. You open the door. No, 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 you're not staying. Come on, come on in. Hey, we're about to eat dinner. Eat dinner with us. Or come at least go, go, let's sit down. Hang out with me in the kitchen while I'm doing whatever. It, it's that level of relationship. See, that's what Jesus says he wants with us. That's actually what we need. And so, so the question I would have is, is Jesus a doorstep relationship or is he a dinner table relationship for you? Do, do we kind of leave him at the doorstep? Oh yeah, I'm checking in with Jesus. And you know, I run to the doorstep. Hey, Jesus, quick, you got a verse for me. I need a verse. You know, I want to start my day. Give me a quick verse, quick verse. You run to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, this isn't going well. I got a quick prayer. Can, can you do something about this? Run to Jesus. Jesus, take the wheel. I mean, it's, it's not going good. Jesus, I'm kind of down. You got any encouragement? Oh, thank you, Jesus. And we shut the door. And, and people say, hey, man, are you doing life? Oh yeah, yeah, a life with Jesus. But he's a doorstep friend. As, as opposed to you open the door and you go, Jesus, come do life with me. And to do that, by the way, I'm going to carve out part of my day to be with you. It's fundamental to it. That's why this, this habit, if you don't learn this keystone habit of spending time in his word, because he speaks through this living word, spending time in prayer with him, carving out that day, he will forever stay a doorstep friend. And it's great to have those little interactions, but you're not experiencing the kind of life that he promises and frankly, the kind of life we need. So to do that, how do we put this in practice? I'm gonna just tell you what I'm doing this summer. So this summer, you gotta spend some time in God's word. I'm gonna use the soap method to go through the gospels this summer. A lot of times when I, I do reading with it, I'll do the gospels and then kind of do another one. I, I was just thinking about the other day, I need to spend the summer with Jesus. And so I'm gonna go straight through all four gospels. And I'm going to start in Matthew on June 1st. And it's right about, it's 89 chapters or so if you do all that. So it covers the three months. And you spend a chapter a day going through the gospel. And I use the SOAP method. I, I taught you guys this. You can see it in your notes again. If you don't have some method of doing it, you probably aren't going to do it. I'll just be honest. If you don't have some kind of plan, and I'm not saying this has to be the plan, but having some time that I go, I'm carving out my day to spend some time reading through a passage, and then make some observation. And I, I've just found if you've never done this as well, it really helps get a notebook or something that you start jotting some notes in. It'll trigger your brain in a way that doesn't happen otherwise. And you'll engage at a deeper level. Then make an application. Man, what is this scripture saying to me today? Sometimes it's one verse that stands out. And then you give some time for prayer. 
And this would be a key one I'd say. Sometimes we get so fascinated with studying the Bible, we don't have any time to pray at the end of it. And so we've been studying, we've been reading, and then we get to the end. Okay, thank you, Jesus. This may be the most important part that you give yourself some time to meditate on what he's saying and listen to him and talk to him. Guys, I, I, I just, I feel this this strongly. I don't know anyone who has had sustained growth in Jesus over a lifetime who didn't develop this practice in their life. I'm not saying exactly this way, but I'm saying that daily, daily, they carve out time to spend it in God's word and talk to him in prayer. Now there, there's many other parts and disciplines of engaging God. So don't hear me say that's the only way, but if you don't develop that fundamental practice, everything else you do in following Jesus is that much harder. And so that's why it's the keystone practice to start as you engage God. Secondly, with that, receive teaching, receive teaching. So while we're doing this individually, corporately, collectively, you need teaching in your life. If you look at that, you need authoritative teaching for your growth and protection. All throughout the scripture, there's warnings about false teaching, false influence. And, and so just because somebody uses the Bible doesn't mean they're using it correctly. And so that's that place of, of having teaching. And Hebrews 13 says, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. For those of us who are pastors, when you're a part of a body, it's authoritative structure that God's put in place. And the reason he does this is I have to give an account for your souls. I will have to answer to God one day for your souls. I will not have to answer for your choices. Make that clear. Thank God. <laughs> but I will have to give an account that God said, okay, did you teach them in the fullness of my truth? Did you teach them according to true doctrine? Were you diligent? Did you accurately present God's word? Did you exhort? Did you encourage? Did you reprove? Did you correct? Or did you always kind of just do what you like to do? See, there's this responsibility we have as leaders in speaking into it. And he says, let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be no advantage of you. So while I have a responsibility, you're not supposed to make my life just miserable in the process. It's this, okay, I want to be taught, I want to be led in that process. And, and as you think about it, and this is what's important, I don't care who you are. I mean, I've grown up, I've heard, I don't know how many thousands of sermons. I still need to be taught. I have teachers that I, I seek out and I listen to. E each of us need that in our life because it's not just what I discovered on my own, it's that protection over it. A great image of this, I think is the Golden Gate Bridge. You know, the Golden Gate Bridge, is, it's, that color of it is internationally known. There is a crew, I, when I last read it, they may have added to it, but there's 34 people who officially are painting the bridge all the time. They're never done painting the bridge. There's never a point they go, okay, it's orange everywhere, we covered it, we're done. In fact, they're going out all the time and they're looking, some places they have to paint more than others because they're more vulnerable. Because the bay fog that comes in and the air is so salty, it's so corrosive that if they ever have a patch where they let that paint wear away, if it's not covered in it, it starts eating away immediately and it damages the hole. 
In the same way, guys, we live in a culture around us that's corrosive all the time. We, we have thoughts coming at us. We have videos coming at us. We have thinking coming in different ways. And it's so different than the truth of God's word. And so each one of us, it's not just what I discover on my own. I need someone painting in my life. I need it constantly coming. Some of you, you've gone to church for years and you have so many layers of paint on you, you might be convinced I don't need any more paint. The day you do that is the day you're opening your life to corrosion. Some of you, you're brand new in your journey and you're just now covering your life with God's truth and you're discovering new areas. Like you're discovering as you go, oh, wow, God's word speaks to that too. Oh, it impacts that. And that's part of life of going, I want my life completely covered with the truth of God's word. And so that's why I, I need to practice this and have this as part of my life. As we do that, here's how you put this one into practice. Pretty simple. Just commit to listen to the Venture Sermon every week. Commit every week. If you can, it's, I think it's better here. Now, some of you can't, I'm glad that you join us online or sometimes you missed it and you travel. Hear me, we're so glad for the technology that you can engage. But wherever, if it's at home or at here, actually engage though, actually turn your brain on. That's why when Chuck or Charles are teaching, I always grab the notes and I'm, I'm scratching a few notes. It's not because I save them. But in that process, as they're teaching, it forces my brain to engage at a different level. Some of you young people, We've had middle schoolers and high schoolers. And, and so part of it, we have you come to this service for a reason. There is a practice of learning how to engage even in a sermon, learning how to, to focus your attention and apply it to your life. And it's a discipline. I recognize that. And some of you as parents, you, you hear from your kids. They're like, I don't want to go. It's boring. That's where parenting comes in. That's where we step in together. Go, yeah, it is. But you're going to grow through that discipline and your life will be shaped through it. If we don't choose to do that, let's not be shocked one day when they become adults and they go, I never go to church again. Because they didn't have the opportunity to grow in that practice. So that's why we're committed to it as a church. Give you the third one, worship. Worship daily, we talked about this. Why, what's the why? You become like what you worship. You, you become like what you worship. I, the, the writer, and you've probably heard David Foster Wallace, the speech he gave at Kenyon College. Fascinating writer, he was not a believer. Um, and in fact, he struggled with depression, mental illness, ended up ultimately taking his own life. It was tragic because he was so brilliant. But his words always stand out to me from that speech. It was a graduating speech at Kenyon College. And he said, here's something. Remember, he's not a Christian as he says this. He says, something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if that, they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. He says, if you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. 
He says, on one level, we know this stuff already. It's been codified in myths or proverbs or cliches or bromides or epigrams, even parables. It's in the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. And and I, I think he's so true. Why do we call you to worship daily? Because that's the key. The more I worship God, the more I'll become like God. In fact, I think one of the failings we've had as the church, I'm talking about big C church, especially in the last 20 years or so, I think we can get so focused on teaching people what they should not be doing instead of spending more time teaching them on what they should be doing in worshiping God. Because I think if you worship God more, it starts cleaning up that stuff because you become like him. You start taking on his character. That's why we come and, and we worship together. That's why Jesus said, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. That's why we corporately worship. When I use the word worship, there's parts of it. Part of it is the corporate worship. And I, I, I love being in here in a morning like this and, and we come as a people of God and he's designed it in a way in corporate worship. That's why throughout the Bible, he says, sing to the Lord a new song. That's why Paul says, hey, one of the signs of a spirit-filled life is you sing. That's why he gave us music and song. That's why the children of Israel, when they traveled to the temple, they would sing as they went and they would gather and sing. There's something about singing that forces you outside of yourself. And so we come together and through song, instead of just, I mean, he could have set it up to we, we all stand together and we declare truth about him together. And there's some power in that. It's not nearly as powerful as what he's given us in song. Through music, through song, it moves us both at an intellectual but also emotional level that I'm corporately declaring these truths about God. And as I rehearse them, it calls me outside of me toward the God that I'm both worshiping and becoming like in it. It's just one part of the process. That's, that's why unashamedly I call people to sing. And I, I know some of you are like, maybe you're brand new in the journey. You go, Tim, I don't know the songs. I, I'll give you a kind of umbrella of grace on that. Many people though, I, I know Christians, been Christians for years, they don't sing. And you kind of ask them, they go, oh, that's not really my thing. I, I'll just be honest. I think at a core level, it comes down to pride. And, and the reason I say that, and I know you go, well, Tim, I just feel self-conscious when I sing. Yes, that's the very definition of pride. I'm more conscious of me than I am forcing myself in humility to declare these truths about God. And I know you're, if you're like me, some of you go, yeah, but Tim, I don't have a very good singing voice. We're not gonna give you a microphone, so don't worry about that, okay? But as we do this together, it calls me outside of myself. And as we corporately do that, here's what it's designed to do. It's supposed to be this corporate stimulus that then continues through the rest of our life every day. Because worship's not just singing. Worship is the sacrifice of all of who I am. Look, Look how Paul puts it. He says, I appeal to you brothers by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship, this declaration of who God is, this laying of our lives before him. Yes, we do this in song corporately here as a stimulus as we go out there so that every day of the week, all of who I am is an act of worship to him. My work is an act of worship. 
My relationships are an act of worship. What I do with my downtime is an act of worship. And as I lay that as a living sacrifice, remember when the children of Israel laid their sacrifice down? They always brought an unblemished lamb. They brought the best they could. They couldn't all afford the same thing, but they all brought their best. And so part of what we're saying when we say we worship God daily is how do I give my, my God my best today? How does he get the best of me at my work? How does he get the best of me as I engage? And as you do that, as you worship him in that way, you start becoming more like him. So here's what I would just say, putting this one in practice. Every morning, offer your day to God as a living sacrifice. Whether it's in that quiet time, whether in your prayer time, or maybe just when you first wake up, if you'll just frame your mindset and go, okay, God, you get today. And here's what I'm facing today. Here's what I have at work today. Here's what I'm doing today. But you get today and you get my best in it. And as you go through the day, it's not that you took the whole day and I go, okay, I can't go to work now because I gave it to God. No, you go to work that much more. He wants you to go to work and really work because you're giving him your best. And you're not doing it for a paycheck. You're not doing it for a boss. You're doing it for God now. He wants on your downtime and your vacation day and your family day, you engage that much more. You go on adventure that much more because I'm not just doing it for me. I'm doing it in celebration of God and who he is. Worship can reframe your life like few other things because we become like what we worship and we wanna become like him. Let's look at the fourth one here, live in community. Why do we live in community? I'll just make it real simple. You won't make it alone. I don't care who you are. I don't care how gifted you are. I don't know how great you are. You're not made to make it alone. No one was made to make it alone. Even the Lone Ranger at Tonto. And he did most of the work, by the way. Nobody is. And, and, and you look at it. I mean, you look at when people get too isolated with it. In fact, I don't know, you ever watch those shows like Dateline? You know, they have Dateline or something to catch a killer. Or, you know, there's all these things with it. It never fails when they finally narrow in and then the neighbors start talking about the person. They always describe in the same way. Well, he was a bit of a loner. <laughs> he was kind of strange with that. And I look at it and go, yes. Because none of us were made to do it alone. And so, and so I, I would just implore you you were made in the image of a relational God. You were called to relationship. And when I say that, if you're an introvert, it's not that you have to be this extrovert and you know everyone. In fact, sometimes introverts are better in their friendships than extroverts because they have a few and they go deep with them. So God's not trying to redesign who you are, but I don't care if you're married. I don't care if you're a young adult. I don't care if you're a single adult. I don't care if you're a young person. Nobody was made to do life alone. And the beauty of church is by design, God knit us together. And the commitment they had, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Yes, we're devoted to teaching, but you know what they were devoted to just as much as teaching? Fellowship, koinonia, connection, life together, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. This made their top four at that time in the early church. So when they thought of church, they didn't just think about teaching. They didn't just think about prayer. They, didn't, they broke bread. They shared a meal and did communion at the meal. And they chose to do life together because they devoted themselves to it. 
And so, so the question I would just have for you is, is who are you doing life with? If you read through the New Testament, all through it, you see these same commands. It's different commands, but it's always the same audience. You're supposed to do it to one another. You're supposed to serve one another and love one another. I mean, you see it in Romans 12. He says it, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. This, this little phrase, that one another. Some of you need some more another's. You, you need people in your life that you go, yeah, who, who am I doing this with? Especially as I'm following Jesus. It was never designed to be you and Jesus alone. It was always corporately together. And so I would just challenge you. And, and if you're here, because sometimes you can come to a big church like Venture and you feel lost at Venture or you're attending and that, and you go, Tim, I'd love to do this. I just, I'm having a hard time connecting to the one another's. Please let us know. Please, that, that's, we, we have staff, we have people on staff, they'd love nothing more than to talk to you and figure out those connections. We have people, whether it's in a life group, whether it's different connections, we have people in different ways. I don't want anyone that you would go, man, I am here and I, I don't have those people to do life with. And so putting it in practice, pretty simple. Decide who you're gonna do life with this summer. Summer's a great window. You go, okay, over the next three months, who am I gonna do life with and put some dates on the calendar? Don't just talk about it. Don't just think about it. Do something about it. Uh, next category is serve others. Serve others. And why do we serve others? I would say it's the path to humility is through serving others. The path to humility. Um, th the reality is none of us is naturally humble. I'll just say that one again. None of us. And, and I know you go, well, I may be more humble than you think, Tim. I, the, the problem with it is there, there's all these narcissistic people running around and they're in different spheres and you see them and now we have all these tools that narcissistic people have every platform to be more narcissistic. And so we look at them and we go, oh, they're narcissistic. And we compare ourselves to them and we feel really humble. Problem is that's not the standard. It really isn't. And, and, so, and so all of us, and the reason I say it's not natural to us Scripture tells us all of us struggle with pride in different ways. Now it shows up in different ways. Some are flashy proud. Some kind of present maybe humble, but you kind of dig in and you suddenly realize, whoa, there's, there's some pride under all this. And the hardest part about humility, it's fascinating to me, you never grow in humility by studying humility more. I mean, you can become an expert in humility and you probably won't be humble about it. A true story, I know of a Christian leader who wrote a book, A Study in Humility. And then all of his staff came out and said he's the most arrogant person we've ever been around. So you can become an expert in a subject area without actually experiencing it. I think with humility, God uses life circumstances to humble us if we'll allow it, if we'll learn from it. Proactively, the two ways I know proactively the most that you can grow in humility, one is have children. It will humble you like few other things because you thought, man, I'm so on top of everything and you realize I, I, I'm not in control. And so there's a humbling part with that. The second way, and I'd say it's the most fundamental way for all of us, is serve. Is actually serve others. It's what Christ modeled for us. 
It's what Jesus said about himself. He says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. Have you ever noticed this? For even, why does he put even here? He says, even the son of man. The reason is he's highlighting here that based on who he is as the son of man, that's a term for God. That he's God's son. I mean, he's God in the flesh. The last person you would think would serve based on his position is the person who serves the most based on his character. So Jesus highlights it and says, huh, if you look at the one, the son of man who by design should be the highest is willing to be the servant. How much more should you and I? That's why Paul says we should each of us not only look out for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Paul's making the same point. He said, even though he's God, even though he has the glory of God, even though he has the power of God, even though he has all that comes with being God, he didn't say, oh, I gotta hold on to this at all costs. No, he was willing to empty himself and taking the form, look at this, the form of a servant. I mean, it would have been something if Jesus went from the throne room of heaven to come to earth and took the form of a king. That would have been a path of humility. If Jesus had just come and said, well, I'll just be a person. But he took the path all the way down that he became a servant when he was here. See, it's through serving that we actually learn humility. And, and as you know, I looked at this category and, and started thinking about my own. The problem with it is, if you're like me, I can do sporadic service and convince myself I'm serving a lot. When, when, when I'm talking about service here, I'm not talking about your core things. Like if I went home this afternoon and I said, oh man, I served the Venture family by preaching today. I am such a servant. No, that doesn't count. That's part of my job. I can't write off. Now, hopefully I did serve you today. What I'm talking about here is where are those places in your life where you purposely put yourself in a place of service for the sake of others? And, and sometimes we do it sporadically. Like I'll do, you know, venture day of service and we go work for the day. And, and it's easy for me, I'll just be honest, to kind of go, all right, got that done for the year, good. Got the service thing down. Now it's great to do that day, I'm so glad, it's good for me. But see, all of us need those places in our life where you're serving. And here's how you know when it's truly a place of service. They start treating you like a servant. In fact, they'll probably stop thanking you at some point. You ever had that where you go serve and when you're serving, it feels so good. I just love doing this. And then after you do it, you know, you do it for a little bit and keep serving for a few weeks and that new kind of worn off and it, it, this is hard. And then now they actually expect me to show up. They expect me to show up and nobody's thanking me around here anymore. And you go, yeah, welcome to Jesus world. Happened to him his whole life. See, the purpose of doing it wasn't for the great feeling. The purpose of doing it was so that my character becomes more like him. And so for each of us, I, I just challenge you. One of the things I love, this is a serving church. And some of you are really smart. You knock it out on the weekend. 
Some of you, like you come to one service and then you serve. You serve children's ministry, parking lot, and you do that because that's a part of your life. Some of you are serving in the week. You lead life groups. You're in the community. Some of you serve with our partners, whether it's real options or the boys and girls club. I'm not telling you that it's all got to be at church. I'm saying for each one of us, though, we should step back and go, where am I giving my life away in service on a regular basis so that I'm looking more like Jesus through that? And so to put it in practice, I I just pick your spot to serve and commit to it. Don't think about it. Pick a spot and commit to it. And you may go, Tim, I'm at a season. I have very little margin. I don't, it's not going to look the same for everybody, but it needs to be a fundamental part of what we do in our practice in our life. A couple more, we'll finish out with them. Give generously. I preached on this. We did a series on it. Why? It makes all of life better. It just makes life better. Now, a lot of times you think the why on give generously is because you're supposed to. Well, you are, but, but I would just say life is better when you're a generous person. Jesus said it. Jesus said the words of Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. He says, it's just better. Your life's better. You experience more happiness. You experience more life. All those studies, everything that we talked about, I'm just telling you at a fundamental level, if you're not practicing generosity, you're not experiencing life the way God designed it. That's why Paul put it this way. He says, point is, if you sow sparingly, you're gonna reap sparingly. You're not getting back all that God has for you in life. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart. You gotta make a heart decision. Nobody, Nobody can stand over you and force this part of it not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. At a fundamental level, generosity and giving makes life better. And and so do we believe that? Do you believe it? Do you believe Jesus' words, it's better to give than receive? We we believe that here? Yeah. Now, Now, here's rubber meets the road. You know, there's a, a phrase that we used to say, put your money where your mouth is. A lot of times we, we will affirm things and you step back from it and go, man, am I actually believing that enough that it impacts how I approach my stuff? Or is it something I just affirm? And, and I know that's pretty direct. You might be here, whoa, on that. I, it's the same way I had to do in the category of service. As much as I go, oh yeah, I'm all for service. I had to step back and I'm looking at that category and going, Is that really a fundamental part of my life? Have I carved out those ways where I'm giving myself away in that way? And so I'm I'm looking at it and going, yeah, I've got to grow there. I I would say a lot of people are not experiencing what life's all about because at the core of your worship, holding on to what you have is an idol maybe more than you realize. And that's why all these things work together. So how do you put it in practice? I would just say, ask God to tell you what you should be giving. Ask God, just get along with God. Spend some time with him. Get with him and ask him. We actually have a Holy Spirit. He will lead you. And as he leads you, put a plan in place to obey what he tells you to do. And so maybe you feel like, man, God's telling me I I need to increase giving or maybe I'm in giving in ways. And so you start praying about it. You start talking, you start listening to him. Maybe talk to somebody in your life, a friend, go, hey, can I bounce this off of you? Get some counsel in that. But, but treat this like it's a real part of your life and that God will actually speak into your life about it. Final one I preached on last week, share the way. Why do we share the way? Why do we share the good news? Because we're God's plan A, there is no plan B. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit's come on you. You will be my witnesses. 
You're it. You're the witnesses. And we're going to take it around the world. And he's been doing plan A for 2,000 years. And we're the next group of plan A. That we get the opportunity of sharing that good news. We get the opportunity of sharing with others what somebody shared with us. And so of course we want this to be a part of our life. As we look at this, when you think about putting this one in practice, it can be intimidating. I, I just would start with this. Pray that God would raise your evangelistic temperature one degree. I told you about this last week. Got that from Kevin Harney. And uh, Kevin's a pastor. He leads organic evangelism uh, out of it. But, but Kevin's point, and I would just say, wherever you would say your heart is when it comes to evangelism, because this can be intimidating. And maybe you're at a one, you're just like, whew, it's not, not a part of my life at all. Maybe you're seven, eight, or nine. You're passionate about it. No matter where you are, it's praying, all right, God, would you move me one degree? If I go from a one, could, could you start stirring my heart that I, I start caring about people in this way more? Maybe you're three and four that you go, man, God, would you move me to a five that, man, I'd start getting prepared. Maybe you're six or move to a seven. Man, you've placed these people in my life and God, you keep opening up these conversations. Or I've got a friend who's coming to me right now and they're really going through a hard time. Would you open the door that in that conversation, I could not only help them in this need, I could start introducing them to you. No matter where you are, what would it look like if every person in this room, no matter where you are on that, if we all went up one degree? Think about the impact. But it's not something you can manufacture. It's not something you're gonna go, okay, I'm gonna be more evangelistic. It's something God's gotta do in you. And so just start praying, start praying for you. Just pray, God, would you move me one step? And then start praying. And again, I just encourage everybody, get about three to five, six people, put them on your prayer list and start praying for them by name every day. And just pray, God, these are people I want to experience life in you. And you just consistently pray for them every day. You know, one, one of my heroes, I always love reading about his life, his prayer journals, is George Mueller. Lived in the 1800s. If you ever read his stories, unbelievable. He, he felt like God had called him to open up orphanages, but he also felt like God told him, don't ever ask for money. And so they would go, he started having like 1,500, 2,000 kids in these orphanages. And he would have to pray every day that God would provide what they needed. And God would show up in these miraculous ways. Money would come in at times when they least expect it. He also had a very evangelistic heart though too. And he wanted to grow in that. And, and so part of it, you read in his journals, at one point in 1844, he wrote down the list of five people that God had placed on his heart. Three of them were peers of his. And then two of them were young men that were friends of his son. And he made the commitment to pray for them every day. He wrote in his journal, I pray for them every day, whether I'm sailing, whether I'm traveling by horseback, whether I'm sick, whether I'm busy, I pray for these five every day. 18 months after he started, the first one came to Christ. Five years later, the second one came to Christ. And Mueller's praying every day. Six years later, the next one came to Christ. And then over the next years of his life, it ended up being 36 years total, he prayed for the last two. And it wasn't until about 14, 15 years after his death that both of those men came to Christ. 52 years after Mueller had started that journey. 
Now, I look at that because the part of it that stands out to me, if you read about his life, he's caring for orphans, he's speaking, he's teaching, he's as busy as anybody out there. But God laid on his heart these five. And he said, you know what I can do? I can pray for them every day. Who do you know that needs Jesus? And maybe today you go, I don't even know how I'd broach a conversation with them. Maybe today they're totally closed off. Maybe they, they're far away. But you can pray. And as we pray, God moves through it. So I, I just challenge you, pray not only for your heart, but pray for their heart as well. Hey, there's probably nothing in these seven that as we went through it the last few weeks or maybe went through it today that you looked at and you went, wow, I had no clue I was supposed to be doing that as a follower of Jesus. This isn't rocket science. It's not innovative. It's not revolutionary, but it will absolutely change your life. And sometimes I think we chase after a bunch of things when we would be better of practicing the few things really well as we pursue Jesus. My prayer, and it's not just this series, but as we continue, my prayer is that we not only pursue him hard, but we also become a people that everything that we're doing, we're building into somebody else's life. Because that's what discipleship looks like. And that's what we've been called to as followers of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you, you have given us examples that 2,000 years ago, you started with your disciples. You handed it down to them and then they've handed it down. And you raised up people like Paul and then he invested in Timothy and Titus and they invested in churches. And, and here we are 2,000 years later and someone has invested down in our lives. Lord, as you've handed this discipleship baton to us, we pray that we would be a church that not only runs hard after you, but we're a church that we're looking over our shoulder and we're always looking at who you've placed in our life that we can be sharing with. Lord, I thank you that everything we talk about in this, it comes from you. The power is in you. And, and that's what we wanna live today. We wanna live that life of sacrifice, that life of overflow, that as you pour into us, we can pour into others. And we thank you that this is available through Christ in whose name we pray, amen. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.